Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32, as we look at this story that was read for us this morning. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. Each one of us are not only living our individual lives, but also together we are all living something bigger. We all in this room have in common that we have entered the stage of world history at the same time. And right now we find ourselves together in the same place. We are a generation. Now, I know it's trendy right now to focus with the sociologists on the fact that we are more than one generation, that we can be dissected into Generation X and Millennials and Baby Boomers and the Silent Generation. But whatever our differences, we also have much in common. We are all alive together in the early 2000s, living in America, living in New York. We are and forever will be the generation who lived at this time in this place. And here's the thing about generations. Every generation experiences unique times and circumstances in the flow of history, which no other generation will ever face exactly the same. Each generation faces unique choices. Each generation faces unique opportunities. These opportunities, these choices belong to that generation alone, and how they handle them, how we handle them, shapes the future For many to come. Just think of the generation living in the 13 colonies on this continent in the 1770s. They faced a decision to continue under British rule or to strike out uh, and seek independence using violence if necessary. And how that generation handled that choice changed the course of human history for many who would come after. Or still in this country, think of the choice the generation living in the 1860s faced on whether this nation would continue to condone slavery and and whether it would hold together as one nation. Other generations have faced other critical moments in history. The African Americans of the 1960s faced the choice of whether to stand up and follow Martin Luther King and others who were calling them to protest and to resist the overtly racist practices and policies which were still in place at that time. As another example, the German Christians living in the 1930s faced the choice of how to respond to the rise of Hitler. Or I'll give you a personal example. I was part of a generation of Christian students who all attended a school called Bucknell University in the late 1980s and early 90s. And God did a special work at that time in that place among that generation of students. Whenever we would go to joint retreats or uh, training events with other fellowships from other colleges or we'd go on mission trips, others would remark that there was something special about us. The size of our fellowship for a school of our size, the, the passion for God that we showed, our maturity, our character that people remarked on. From that generation of students at Bucknell, for instance, I can think of at least 13 people who became missionaries or pastors. God gave that generation a special opportunity to embrace a work that God wanted to do on that campus, and we embraced it. Well, today I want to focus on another generation. The generation living in a place called Palestine in the opening years of the first century A.D. A generation with a critical choice and an amazing opportunity. 
Because this was the generation living at the time and in the place where God chose to send his own son into the world to live as a human being among them and to bring the world God's salvation. What a choice. What an opportunity for that generation. And what far-reaching consequences their decisions would have. So how did that generation respond to the coming of Jesus? How did they receive him? Well, in today's passage, Jesus gives us his own evaluation. And it's not a positive one. In fact, he calls them a wicked generation. He actually says they're wicked. And the evidence Jesus gives for their wickedness is that they ask for a sign. Now, what kind of sign are they asking for, and why is it so wicked to ask for a sign? Those are the two questions I'd like to ask as we begin to look at this passage this morning. First, what kind of sign are they asking for? I mean, hadn't Jesus given them plenty of signs already? We saw last Sunday that Jesus was casting demons out of people. He had also raised a little girl from the dead. There was then that uh, woman who had been bleeding for years, and just by touching Jesus' garment, his bleeding stopped, or her bleeding stopped. Jesus had also healed lots of other people, a a centurion servant, a widow's son, a man with leprosy, a paralytic, the mother-in-law of a fisherman. Not to mention that one time Jesus helped that fisherman named Peter catch a miraculously large catch of fish. Jesus also once fed over 5,000 people with only a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Another time he calmed a raging storm on a lake And that generation was still asking for a sign? (laughs) What kind of further sign did they need? Well, to find the answer, we just have to go back to verse 16 of our chapter, where Luke clarifies what kind of sign they were looking for. And he says it was a sign from heaven. Because here's the problem with all the miracles Jesus performed, which I just described. All those miracles were from earth, not from heaven. That is, they all happened on the ground, so to speak, as a result of Jesus' direct involvement. Granted, they were impressive. Granted that they were all miraculous. But other prophets had done miracles like those in the past, too. Before Jesus, there had been Elijah and Elisha, for instance. What the people of this generation were looking for was a sign from heaven. Something more on par with what had been accomplished during Moses' ministry. Um, or rather had accompanied Moses' ministry is probably a better word. For example, when the top of Mount Sinai blazed with fire and there were earthquakes, or when manna covered the whole ground every morning like bread from heaven, something which would really show that God was at work here, that, that heaven was behind what Jesus was doing and not some other power or magic intrinsic to Jesus. So that is the kind of sign that people were looking for. Second question, though, why was it wicked to ask for a heavenly sign like that? What was really so wrong with that? I mean, I'm the first to admit that I'm a critical thinker. I tend to question and to analyze everything. I'm always thinking, yeah, but what about this angle? Or or couldn't it be explained by that? How do we know that this is really true instead of that being true? And so over the years, I've had my questions. I've, I've had my doubts about God and various things in the Bible. And is that so wrong? Does Jesus demand blind faith from us? 
Does he not want us to think? Does he want us to believe unquestioningly? Is that why Jesus calls this generation wicked for seeking a sign? Because they're asking honest questions? Because they engaged their brain? I don't think that's it. I don't think Jesus begrudges us the, the right to ask or to think critically or, or to have doubts. Rather, here's what I think is going on. The truth is, we don't just believe with our minds. We also believe with our hearts. We don't just believe A rather than B because the evidence is stronger for A than for B. Rather, we are also tempted to believe A instead of B because it's in our, best, our own best interest to do so. Because you see, we aren't robots. We aren't cerebral computers that just take in all the data and churn out logical conclusions based on that data. No, we are complicated creatures. We are subjective creatures full of motives and fears and desires and hopes, some of them consciously known to us, some of them deep and hidden even to us. And so to some extent, we believe to be true what we want to be true. And we find it easy to ignore or disbelieve what we'd rather not have to be true, right? Uh, it, it doesn't take a religious person to make this point. Psychologists have long observed this, and politicians accuse one another of this kind of bias all the time. And I think this is what's going on in this case with this generation who are demanding a sign from Jesus. This generation has a choice to make about who Jesus is. Is Jesus really sent from God to bring God's kingdom and God's salvation to the world? Or is Jesus a, a religious huckster, a charlatan, maybe even a sorcerer or a magician of some sort? The people of that generation didn't just answer that question based on a cerebral analysis of the evidence. No, they answered it also based on what they in their heart of hearts wanted to be true. And that generation had two basic options of how they would choose what to believe about Jesus. The same two options we have today. We can assume that Jesus is sent from God until we have sufficient reason to believe otherwise. Or we can reject that Jesus was from God until we have sufficient proof that we're wrong. You see the difference? Once we've done a basic investigation of who Jesus is, uh, of what Jesus did, of what Jesus claimed for himself we're going to have to make one of those two decisions. Uh, we may still have our unresolved doubts. In the meantime, we may have lingering questions. We, we may be able to argue both sides of the argument and not be 100% sure. But in the meantime, we've got to make a choice. Based on what we do know, are we going to embrace Jesus as sent from God until we have sufficient reason to think otherwise? Or are we going to reject Jesus until he can prove to our satisfaction that he's worth accepting. This choice be between these two postures isn't purely an intellectual one. It's one that we also make with our hearts. We make it for subjective reasons, based on our values, based on our own life priorities and agendas, based on our fears and our hopes and our other motives as well. Well, that was the choice that the generation of the first century faced. Jesus had come to them, 
teaching them about God, performing mighty miracles, acts of love and compassion, deliverance and blessing for them to see, and calling them to change their lives and to follow him. And based on that information, that generation made a choice. They basically said, hmm, he could be from God. Then again, maybe not. We're going to choose to believe he's not until he proves to us otherwise. If you want us to accept you, Jesus, give us a sign from heaven. A bigger sign, a better sign. Prove to us that you're really from God. Until you do that, we're going to keep assuming you are not from God and go on with our lives. Each generation has a unique choice, a unique opportunity, and this is the choice that that generation made. In today's passage, we see how Jesus evaluated that choice. He called them a wicked generation. And then, to elaborate on why he felt they were wicked, Jesus contrasted them with two other generations. Two generations which, as we'll see, were seeking generations. Seeking generations. While by contrast, we could call Jesus' own generation a hiding generation. A hiding generation because they didn't want to seek for the truth about Jesus. Instead, they wanted to hide from him. To hide behind the excuse that he hadn't given them a sufficiently definitive sign. So first, Jesus compares his own generation to the people of Nineveh. This recalls the story of Jonah, a prophet sent from God. Um, of course, we all know the fish part, but after the fish part, he was uh, sent to the wicked Assyrian city of Nineveh. Some 700 years before Jesus, this took place. The Ninevites were the enemies of God's people. They were infamous for their cruelty. They were infamous for their oppression. And God sent Jonah to the Ninevites to warn them that God was going to destroy them because of their wickedness. But guess what that wicked, cruel, heartless people did when Jonah warned them of God's coming wrath? They repented. <laughs> they humbled themselves. They, they begged God to forgive them and they changed their behavior. They sought God. They, they sought God's favor rather than hiding behind excuses. They didn't say, well, Jonah, how do we know you're really from God? I mean, show us a sign. Prove yourself. Because maybe God sent you. Maybe God didn't. We're choosing not to believe you unless you can prove otherwise. They didn't do that. <laughs> you see the difference between, the heart difference between their seeking and Jesus' own generation's hiding. The Ninevites didn't hide behind all the reasons Jonah might not be from God. No, they were God-seekers. They had soft hearts, willing hearts. They may have had their questions or their doubts about Jonah's message. We don't know. But based on what they did know, they were receptive and willing to listen, willing to trust and to respond based on the message that God gave to them. Then Jesus points to a second example. The Queen of the South also sometimes called the Queen of Ethiopia or the Queen of Sheba, another seeker who in the days of Solomon traveled from the ends of the earth to visit Solomon simply because she had heard stories of the great wisdom that God had given Solomon. The queen later admits to Solomon that she had had her doubts that the stories she had heard could possibly be true. This queen was a questioner. But instead of choosing to just doubt, in, until someone could prove otherwise, 
This woman did the opposite. She said, I'm going to proactively seek out the truth. I'm going to choose to believe until I have reason not to. And so she traveled halfway across the known world to find out for herself whether what she was choosing to believe was really true. And when she got there, she was overwhelmed. And she said to Solomon, wow, the stories I heard were an understatement. God is with you far more than even people had claimed. Again, do you see the difference in heart attitude? This queen had a heart which was willing to go to great lengths to seek the truth about God. This queen could have easily have stayed at home and said, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but until someone proves it to me, I'm going to ignore it and go on with my own life. But that's not the attitude she had, and it's not the attitude the people of Nineveh had. Contrast them, those two generations, with Jesus' own generation, who said, unless we see a greater sign, we will not believe in you. And, and notice the Ninevites, the queen of the south, they were pagans, far from God. They, they didn't have God's word. They were far from God's presence with the Jewish people. But they made the most of the little revelation that God had given them. Some rumors about a far-off king, a prophet who smelled of fish, evidently, bringing them a message of judgment. Those are the kind of seekers Jesus desires. And that's why Jesus says his own generation, God's own people, religious though they were, were a wicked generation. And so Jesus says to his own generation, the queen of the south, the, the people of Nineveh, they're going to be your judges. When God raises all people at the end of history to sort everything out and make everything right and bring the justice that we all long for, God is going to compare those pagans and how they responded to the little revelation that God gave them. He's going to compare them to you, Jesus says to his own generation, to whom God gave his own son. But you hid behind the excuse that I didn't provide a sign from heaven to prove myself sufficiently to you. God will let their example judge and condemn you because the truth is God gave you plenty of signs, plenty of evidence, plenty of revelation, but you didn't want to believe. And so you hid behind the fact that God didn't give you a greater sign from heaven. What harsh words for that generation. But what about you? What about me? Are you a seeker? Or are you someone who hides from God? Hides from Jesus? What's in your heart? What's in my heart? Do you want to believe? Do you want to seek out the truth? Or, or would you rather hide behind the fact that, that God hasn't given you compelling enough evidence yet? And in the meantime, you'd rather not know, rather not get too involved with this whole Jesus thing until God proves it to you. Because guess what Jesus says elsewhere? He says, to those who have, more will be given. But to those who don't have, even what they have will be taken from them. In other words, if you have a seeking heart, if, if you're making the most of the little bit of truth, the little bit of revelation you have so far, God will give you more revelation and more clarity. But if you won't embrace the insight God's already given you, if you reject it, if you hide behind your doubts, if you hold out for a greater sign and more proof, no sign will be given to you. 
Because you don't really want to know what God wants to show you anyway. You know, every once in a great while, um, when Anne, my wife, gets frustrated with me, she has accused me of being deliberately obtuse. Do <laughs> you know what that means? <laughs> I'll tell you what it means. <laughs> it, it means I don't like what she's saying, so I pretend I don't understand, or I choose not to try to understand. Right, guys? <laughs> We're comfortably settled into our armchair, our feet are up, and she says, the garbage is full. <laughs> And we're not quite sure why she's telling us that. <laughs> Somewhere in the back of our minds, we might have an inkling of what she's getting at, but mostly we just don't understand, or we don't want to understand, and so we keep sitting there. That's what Jesus is saying is happening with the generation he came to. What, Jesus? Are you saying something? We're not sure we read you. If you want us to understand, give us a really dramatic sign, okay? And Jesus says, no, I've given you all the evidence that anyone needs who wants to know the truth. But you, in your heart of hearts, obviously do not want to know. You do not want to believe. God has given you me, someone greater than Jonah, someone greater than Solomon, and yet you're not impressed. And that about sums up all God needs to know about your generation. Well, how about our generation today? There's a lot we could say about that, and in the discussion group, you can take it further. But for now, for the next few minutes, let's begin with those of us in this room. What have we done with the revelation we've been given? We've been blessed with loads of revelation, right? I, I mean, just for instance, how many Bibles in your language do you have in your house? or available on your phone or on your web browser at your fingertips? How many churches do you have within driving distance? How many Bible studies could you attend if you wanted to? What are you doing with all that? What are you doing with it? Are you seeking more of Jesus? Or are you hiding from Jesus because you don't really want to know? Here's the uncomfortable truth that Jesus warns us about. Often, it's the pagan godless people who are seeking while the religious people are hiding. And even, here's the even more scandalous truth. Very often, the religious people use church to hide from Jesus. They use church to hide from Jesus. We know from history that, that the generation Jesus came to was a super-religious generation. The Pharisees of that day were leading the way, and they had an enormous influence on the people. Yet their, their religion led them to believe that God's chosen one, God's Messiah, would give them great signs proving his identity. And so they hid from Jesus behind this religious excuse of needing a greater sign. And Jesus says, that's wicked. Instead of embracing the truth you already have, you're, you're being deliberately obtuse. Because you don't want to believe. You're hiding behind your religion. So how about us? What are we doing with all our Bibles, all our studies? Are, are we really seeking the real Jesus? Or are we hiding from Jesus behind our religion? That little thing that 
has been pricking your conscience that you probably need to deal with. Because here's what we tend to do with Jesus. We say, hmm, Jesus, you say some hard stuff. You, you prick my conscience. You say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You say, take up your cross and follow me. Lay down your life, and that's how you'll find it. You, you say, be my witnesses, even to the point where you're willing to endure persecution for the good news about me. You say, love your enemies. You say, forgive everyone who's hurt you. You say, sell your possessions and give to the poor. You, you say, I demand all of you, your, your whole life, give yourself to me and you'll find life and joy and freedom. And we hear all that and we say, hmm, Jesus, that's confusing. I don't really understand all that. It doesn't make sense. But I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll go to church regularly. I'll even attend a Bible study and keep studying it, okay? And, and that'll be good enough instead, right? Right, Jesus? So question as we close. Why are you here? Why are you part of this generation at CBC? Are you, are you really seeking the real Jesus? Or are you actually hiding from him behind a little religion? What kind of generation will we in this room be known to be? We dare not become the kind of church that helps one another hide. We've got to seek Jesus together and help others to seek him too. So as we continue to celebrate Advent, as we continue to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, the King, the one worthy of our whole lives, our full allegiance, our real worship, not just singing songs, but bowing the knee of our heart and our life to the King. Let's take the advice of the Christmas Carol writer who reflected on another group of seekers when the writer penned, Sages, leave your contemplations. Brighter visions beam afar. Seek the great desire of nations. Ye have seen his natal star. Come and worship. Come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. Let's seek. Let's worship.